You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. If you've not been over to the cafe and seen the timeline of the church's last 50 years of history, um, I encourage you to go over. They did an incredible job with that. So I encourage you to go over there and look at that. Uh, and um, on your way over there, stop by the table out there and pick up your word for you today. It's our devotional so that we're all on the same devotional every single morning. Uh, very short. You can do it right before you go to work before you go to school. Uh, So pick one of those up. That's for September, October, November. Now, if you've got your copy of God's Word right there where Kirkwood was reading chapter 25 of Exodus, I want you to put your finger there. Now, if you're visiting today, I want to explain to you what I'm doing. We've been going through uh, the book of Exodus since last September. So we've been almost a year in the book of Exodus. I've saved the tabernacle right to the end And we've been looking at the tabernacle. I'm going to look at the Ark of the Covenant today. Uh, What was that odd piece of equipment that was there in the tabernacle, in the temple, Solomon's temple? And uh, you'll read about it. You know, there are over 185 references to that Ark in the Old Testament alone. Uh, Not to speak of the New Testament, numbers of references to it, especially in the book of Hebrews and in the book of Revelation. Uh, So we're looking at that. Next Sunday, I know, is going to be uh, Labor Day weekend. I'm going to be here. You know, you be wherever you got to be. I'm going to be here, and I'm going to talk about the showbread table, the incense altar, and the uh, uh, menorah to finish this up so that on the day of our 50th anniversary, I want to talk about that cloud moving, and I want to talk about it moving toward our future. So we'll finish up on the 10th of September the book of Exodus in the last chapter and in the book of Numbers. This morning, chapter 25, but I want to tell you two stories that'll give you a little bit of perspective uh, about the Ark of the Covenant in the nation of Israel, in the life of the people of Israel. By the way, let me say this. uh, If something goes on with the lights, uh, we have spanked them back there. No, uh, something burned out. Something's gone out. Uh, and we've got to replace a piece of all that equipment and uh, some of the lights as well. And I understand it's about uh, $250,000, so y'all be sure to give today. Um, uh, But we'll leave that up to the uh, finance committee. So don't worry about the lights. They're they're broken. Um, Now, back to this. Two stories. I want you to see the part that the ark played in the life of Israel. Two accounts, one in Joshua chapter 3 and chapter 4. When you come to the book of Joshua, Moses has died. Joshua now is leading the people, and he's leading a whole new generation into the land of promise. Remember, the old generation, God said, you're going to die out, and I'll take the next generation into the land. Because of all of their 
disobedience and their disbelief, uh, God said, you'll wander for the next 40 years. That generation dies out. All their kids get to go into the land. So Joshua, in fact, Joshua and Caleb are the only two that get to go into the land, not even Moses, from the previous generation. Joshua's got them down by the river Jordan. And in this passage, Joshua chapter 3 and 4, the Jordan is overflowing its banks, uh, which it can do. I've seen it overflow its banks on one occasion. Back in 1981, I was in Jerusalem, um, and uh, at the largest snowfall on record in Jerusalem, it was a foot of snow. And we had to get out a few days after that. And we were going across the Allenby Bridge, which is an old bridge. It was there in World War II, uh, World War I. And um, we were having to go across that bridge, and the river was just inches below overflowing the bridge. Uh, so it was just a wild, rushing river. Well, that's what's happening in Joshua chapter 3 and 4. So they are there, ready to go, and listen. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1, Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel uh, set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. And at the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp. They go through, and they start telling everybody what's going to happen. That, That was email in that day. They just walk through the camp telling everybody, this is going to happen in three days. When you... When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priest carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be a distance between you and uh, that Ark of about 2,000 cubits. That's about um, uh, two-thirds of a mile. You can't get any closer than that. You be sure you stay almost a mile away from where the priests are who are carrying that Ark. You couldn't get to it. You couldn't look at it. You sure didn't dare touch it. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. So he says this. He says, in three mornings, you're going to get up, packed up, ready to go. And he says, you're going to watch the Levitical priests, the Kohathites, are going to put the ark up on their shoulders, and they're going to step down into that rushing river Uh, the Jordan River, and when they do, God's going to cause all that water to pile back up. It's going to roll back up to the north. It's going to go in the opposite direction. It'll roll back up to the north, and it'll stay there until all of you get to the other side. Now, it's almost a repeating of the Red Sea, a little different, but that's what's going to happen. So that's what they do. This is the first time that the Hebrews ever follow the ark somewhere. This is the first, won't be the last. You remember they get over into the land of promise and they come to Jericho and they're going to follow the ark around the walls of Jericho for seven days. You remember what they're going to do? So that's going to, so it's the beginning. This is the first time you see it. Um, So it's the presence of God is what I want you to understand. They are in a procession. They have put themselves in the position, in the procession, to follow the presence of God. Now, that's where we need to find ourselves. Uh, The overarching thing that I want you to see out of this is that we need to be in a place where we're following the presence of God. So keep that in mind. And let me take you back to another passage of Scripture back in Numbers uh, chapter 14. 
So just go back a few pages, Numbers chapter 14. When Israel, when you come to chapter 40 of Exodus and they leave Mount Sinai, they're going to travel to a place called Kadesh Barnea. It's at Kadesh Barnea that they're going to send in 12 spies. They were going to go into the land that God had promised them from Kadesh Barnea, and they send 12 spies into the land, and 10 of the spies, you remember, come back with a very negative report. They say, we can't do it. Doesn't make any difference what God said, we can't do it. There are giants over there, it's impossible. Um, we are like grasshoppers in their sight, and uh, it is about, now, Joshua and Caleb said, oh sure, we can do it. God said we can do it, we can do it. And the people go to pick up stones to stone Moses, Aaron, Joshua, Caleb. And God intervenes. And God says, okay, Moses, y'all back up. I'm just going to zap them all. I'm just going to wipe them all out. At one time, I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses, I'm going to start over with you. Now, that's about the third time God has done this. And this is about the third time that uh, Moses has interceded, pleaded for the people, God, don't do this. Don't do what, what the, What's the Egyptians going to think? What are they going to say? What are these na nations around us? What are all these pagan nations going to say if you wipe all these, your people out? They, they know who they are. They know who you are. What will they say? And so God says, okay, but now they're going to they're gonna be punished. I'm going to punish them for what they've done. And uh, Moses intercedes. The people are spared, but the people now feel bad. Now, boy, this is a sermon right here. They feel bad at this point. And they say, you know what? We really should have done what God told us to do when God told us to do it. Um, but we didn't do it, but we can do it now. And God says, no, you can't. Now, I'm going to make a point here. Ooh, I'd love to preach at this point, but I won't do it. But there are times when God tells you, and he tells me, and he tells the church, and he tells a denomination, or he tells a group of people, and he says, now is the time to do what I've called you to do. And we can sit around and play tiddlywinks so long that God will say, forget it. Amen. And he'll not give you that opportunity again. And so he tells that generation, just forget it. And that generation comes back and says, no, we, we, we're going to go up there. We're going to go up there. Regard, they don't listen to him either way. Right. He says, go. No, we're not going to go. He says, okay, don't go. No, yeah, we're going to go. And, and uh, God tells him, I want you to know, this is what I want you to see. Now watch this. Verse 43, Numbers chapter 14, for the Amalekites and the Canaanites will be there in front of you, and you will fall by the sword inasmuch as you have turned your back from following the Lord, and the Lord will not be with you. Now hold that right there. You see it? The Lord will not be with you. Now watch it, what is connected to that. But they went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill. Neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses left the camp. So you got the Lord, Moses, and the ark. They stay behind. They don't go out in front now. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down, struck them, and beat them down as far as Birmingham. <laughs> beat them down. Beat them back. All the way back to Hormah is what the Bible says. So, two incidences that happen. One, they find themselves listening to God. Their position in the procession is to follow the presence of God. Here, they don't follow it at all. They follow their own um, desires. They do what they want to do. 
God says go, they say no. God says then don't go, and they said, no, we'll go now. Um, That you've said don't do it, and you see what happens to them. Now, you've got that in your mind. This is the position that the ark begins to play in the life of the nation of Israel. So take your Bibles now and go with me back to Exodus chapter 25. Because here's the whole thing. Are we following the presence of God? Are we in part of that procession that's in behind the presence of God? And you say, well, what are we following? So I want to show you about the ark. And I'm going to show you three things because... That's generally what I do, is I give you three points. So here we go. Number one, I want you to look at the ark um, as preservation. The ark was a place of preservation. Now, let me read verse 10. They shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide, one and a half cubits high. Quickly, I've said this before, I don't give the same amount of attention to numbers in a lot of the rest of the Bible as I do into this part right here because I think everything is pointing to something. That ark is about three feet wide and about five feet long and three feet high. Now, just kind of get this in your head. Three is a symbol of what? Now, y'all should know this. Trinity. Trinity. So just kind of keep that there. I'm going to show you something in a moment. And five, I've given you over and over and over again, is the picture of grace. I hear some of y'all whispering it. Come on, be bold. Man, just if you're wrong, just be bold, boldly wrong. And if you're right, then you impress everybody else on this side because I heard it from this side. So it's it's grace. What What are you going to get when you come to that ark? And you'll see why in just a little bit. You're going to get grace. You're going to get grace. Just like when you come to the cross of Jesus Christ, it's almost a picture of the ark in the Old Testament is the picture of grace. The cross in the New Testament is the picture of grace. Now, here we, here we are. You come to that. And the fact of the matter is this. God designed the tabernacle to sit in the very midst of the, of the 12 tribes of Israel. All 12 tribes were camped around the tabernacle. In the very center of the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant. So all the life of Israel was to circulate around the Ark of the Covenant, which is where God said, I will cause my presence to dwell. Now watch this. There are three arks that we've already looked at in Scripture, at least over the last five years that I've been here. Number one is in Genesis 6. It's the Ark of Noah. Noah's ark. And I want you to listen to what the Lord says there about building of that ark. He comes to Noah in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 14, and he says, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. Now hold that. Now look over to the second chapter of Exodus. Exodus chapter 2. And you come to the second ark, which is the ark of Moses. Moses' ark was that little wicker basket. It's, in the Hebrew, it's called an ark. If you are, if you, those of you that are reading the Hebrew, Kirkwood, since you're reading the Hebrew, I know. Uh, it's the word for ark that is there. It's a wicker basket, and it's covered over with tar and pitch. 
Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Now, in both of those, you read this. You've got an ark, and they are covered with pitch. The word pitch in Hebrew is kephar. It means to cover, to smear, atone. The word atone comes from this word kephar, and it means to be smeared, to be covered. You smear this atonement, you cover this thing with the atonement, it's being atoned for. And that which is on the inside, when it is atoned for, when it is smeared with this pitch, when it's covered, what's on the inside is preserved from the water, from the danger. Now you come to the third ark, and we've just read about it over in Exodus chapter 25. It's not covered with pitch. It's covered with gold because gold represents deity. It is a metal that is a symbol of deity. Verse 11, Exodus 25, you shall overlay it with pure gold. Now, pure gold isn't everything in the temple is covered with gold. Uh, in the tabernacle, is covered with gold. This specifies pure gold, which an assayer would take this and he would heat it up in a crucible and he would, he would skim out all of the dross. Everything that was not gold, he would take out. And to the best of their ability, they removed every mineral that did not belong there, that was not gold. They removed it from out of this so that what was put on the outside was pure gold. In the middle was acacia wood. It was a box of acacia wood made out of that wood that is basically uh, disease-resistant, insect-resistant, rot-resistant. It just is almost an incorruptible piece of wood, this acacia wood, which speaks of the character of Christ. It speaks of the nature of Christ. Christ was incorruptible. He was pure. He was sinless. So you've got a layer of pure gold representing God the Father. You've got now this wood representing God the Son. And then we're told you are to lay all of this on the inside. You are to cover it. You shall overlay it with gold. So you've got gold on the inside, which represents I think the Holy Spirit, where does the Holy Spirit live? Inside of the believer. So you've got a perfect picture of the Trinity when you come to this ark, and it is an ark that either, you know, with the pitch smeared on it, or this ark covered outside, inside, and it's covering up this incorruptible wood is an ark of preservation. It preserves everything that is on the inside of it. And I'm going to show you what's on the inside of it in just a little bit. But now that's what it is. It's a perfect representation of the Trinity of God. When you are saved, let me tell you, it is the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In fact, you never come to Christ unless you're drawn by the Holy Spirit it's God that sent the Son to come and die for us. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts us and woos us and draws us and calls us to come to Jesus Christ. 
And as we come to him, listen, we are placed at that point in the preservation of Almighty God. Now, I believe in once saved, always saved, and I believed in eternal security. And here you're seeing a picture of it right here in the Old Testament, that whatever is in that ark is preserved. I'll come to, I promise you, in a little bit, I'm going to show you what's been preserved in that ark. But let me tell you, it's a picture of those who are in Jesus Christ that we've come to him. We're saved by the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and then we are preserved. In fact, let me just show you that. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul writes about that very thing. Ephesians chapter 1. We've come to Christ. We've believed in Christ. And he talks about the process right here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, in him, that's Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of truth, we've heard the truth of the gospel, so after we've heard that, the gospel of your salvation, salvation, having also believed, we, we've believed in Jesus Christ, we put our faith in Jesus Christ, I'm going to ask some of you to do that at the end of this service. Listen to the gospel, I'm going to share it in all of this, as you hear it, you respond to it. You believe in Jesus Christ. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Do you see that? That is, you now have been preserved for all of eternity by the Holy Spirit. You are sealed until the day of redemption. That is the second coming of Christ. And then you get that new body and in that new body that's incorruptible and immortal, we will live with him forever. Listen to what he says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were, past tense, sealed, past tense, for the day of redemption. So if that ark there is saying to us anything, it is saying this, those that come to him have eternal security. There is this preservation that is there. We are preserved by him. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, it was not an ark. The cross did not preserve Jesus. But on that cross, Jesus took his blood and smeared atonement for our sin so that you and I would never have to die the death that he died. Now, let me give you the second thing, since that seems to have you all worked up. Let me give you the second thing, and the second thing is this. It's the ark's representation. What does this represent? Um, it was extremely ornate. Now, I think, I don't know if they put it up prior to this moment. I hadn't thought about it, but I want you to look. We're going to go behind the veil, so get ready. There's the menorah. We're going to look at that next week. That's fascinating. We're going to get in there behind the veil. Come on, thing. You're not working, are you? See how the devil works? There we go. See this crown right here? Let me just, let me give you this first. It says moldings in the New American Standard uh, 95, it says in verse 11, you shall make gold molding around it. Uh, the, the word, you know what the word is in the Hebrew? Anybody have a King James? Crown. It says crown. I think in the King James. Well, in the Hebrew it does. This is the crown. What, is it, what does that make you think of when you think of crown? 
Does it not automatically take your mind to the crown of thorns that Christ wore? Well, go beyond the crown of thorns that Christ wore. Go to, go to Revelation chapter 14. In Revelation chapter 14, we see one who comes like the Son of Man. And you know what he's wearing? He's wearing a crown. He's coming with a crown. There is just a hint now of Christ in this. But there's so much more here to this that I want, you to, I, I want you to look at this. I want you to see something about it. Do you know that's the only piece of furniture in all the tabernacle that required no upkeep whatsoever? Let me kind of go through that quickly. You remember the great altar, the altar, the bronze altar, the brazen altar. Do you remember what God said? He said, never let the fire go out. Now, I was reading, I think it was in the book of Maccabees this week. Don't look for that. It's not in your Bible. And it shouldn't be in your Bible because it's not inspired. But it is great history about um, periods of time in, in the Old Testament. In Maccabees, they, it, I, I believe it's stated there that uh, when they take Jeremiah and that group that leaves out of Jerusalem going to Egypt to escape the Babylonians, when the Babylonians come in, that they take literally a, a pan of fire off the altar so that they would never let that fire go out. So the altar, you had to tend to it constantly. You never let that fire go out. It was started how? It was started by God. Remember, a fire fell out of heaven and started the altar fire. He said, never let it go out. You go to the laver. There's the laver. Always had to be full of fresh water, not stagnant water. It couldn't just sit. Water had to be constantly passing through it, washing off the dirt of the priests. So there was the constant care of tending to the laver, of pouring water in and pouring water in and pouring water out. Then you get into the tabernacle itself to the showbread table. And there, the showbread table, there are these loaves of bread, and they are constantly baking these loaves of bread for the priests to consume, to eat, and replacing that. So there's this constant tending to all of that, baking the bread, placing the bread, eating the bread, removing the bread. You get to the incense altar. That altar was lit from the coals of the fire on the bronze altar. It's burning. It requires constant pouring on of, uh, of this incense. You remember the very special formula that God gave these priests. And he said, this is how you mix it up. He says, nobody else is allowed to do this, but this is the formula you mix it. So they were constantly mixing it, constantly putting it on their fire pans and in that incense altar. And then you come to that seven-tined gold menorah, that menorah that had seven different oil lamps on it. Uh, there was constant care. You just didn't use any oil. You, you know, you just didn't pour any sterno in that. It had to be pure beaten olive oil, first press. Do you know the, those of you that have been with me to Israel, when we're over on the Mount of Olives and we go into the Garden of Gethsemane and we're up on the Mount of Olives and all of that, you remember that, sweetie? When we go up there, that's where the priest got the oil for uh, the temple of Solomon and the temple of Herod is they went up there. They picked those olives first press. The first press that you get all that oil goes to the temple, uh, to burn in that menorah right there. But more about that later on. 
So it had to constantly, the wicks had to be trimmed. You had to be sure that they were, you know how they made the wicks? All of the old clothing of the priest were taken by the women and torn into small pieces. And then they were twisted together and they became the wicks that burned in the menorah in the temple. So there's constant work having to be done on all of this. When you came to the Ark of the Covenant, when you came to the Ark of the Covenant, it was the one thing. Man was only in there for a few moments once a year. There was no going in behind the veil and dusting it or cleaning it up or polishing it. You did absolutely nothing to the Ark. Do you know what that says to me? That says to me, that our God cares for his people, we don't take care of him. Now, I'll tell you, because I'm, I'm getting ready to teach this Saturday at the Sub-30 retreat with our college students, and I've been looking at this whole thing of the priesthood of the belief. So I went back, and I discovered something about the priests of Egypt. When you go, because we're going down, and we're going to go to Karnak this coming year, into the temple of Karnak, and Maybe Johnny Carson will be there. Anyway, uh, we're going to go there and see that and uh, all of these other things that are down that way, all of these temples and gods and things. Do you know that the Egyptian priests would, would seal the temple every night? They would put seals on the door every night. And every morning, the priests would come back to that temple and they would break the seals in order to get in. And the high priest of the Egyptians would go in and every morning, he would give his God a bath and then dress him and then put a rope around him and supposedly pretended to walk him around the city. There you go. You, you've either got a God that you got to get up. Let me tell you why you got up this morning. You got up because there's a God in heaven that got you up. Amen. Or you can worship a God you got to go get up and get dressed and haul him around wherever you go. Our God, you don't have to do that to. Our God is a God who can take care of himself. And so that, that ark, at least that ark from the outside to me speaks of the throne of God. But now what was in it? Because you come to verse 16 of Exodus chapter 25, and God says, you shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. Uh, and then he gives him the outline of how to make the mercy seat, because the mercy seat is separate than the ark itself. That mercy seat was made out of one piece of solid gold, if you can imagine that. Uh, it's made out of one single piece of solid gold, three feet wide, five feet long, three, no, not, not three feet thick, but it, it's pretty thick. And then on top, you have the cherubim facing each other, and their wings are stretched out over the mercy seat. Now, just think about that. That's the throne of God right there. But now what's on the inside? Because twice, he says, you put in there... Uh, the testimony which I will give you. There were three things on the inside of the ark. We're going to show them to you right now. Here they are. I always get a little scared when that happens. I don't know. See that gold bowl? It was full of manna. Manna was what rained down out of heaven. 
and was outside the door, tent door, of every Hebrew every morning um, of every day except the Sabbath. They could gather up two days worth on um, Friday and it would get them through Friday and it would get them through the Sabbath. And then Monday would come around and they would go out and they would gather all of this again, just a day's worth. You remember some went out and collected several days worth and it rotted. Well, in the Ark of the Covenant was this golden bowl of manna that never rotted. Just as fresh as the day God had sent it from heaven. It is, we don't know, but everybody calls it bread. Uh, we're told that it tasted uh, like uh, every man's favorite food. Fried chicken. So, uh, there you go, right there. Fried chicken and Krispy Kremes. There you go, right there, in that gold bowl. Stayed fresh, never got old. That's a picture of Christ. Because Jesus told the multitude that he fed that day, I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. Amen. Now, the second thing is this rod. It's a staff, a rod, and it has bloomed, and it bears fruit. That was Aaron's staff. Do you remember the Kohathites wanted the power and the position of Moses and Aaron? And so Moses said, listen, we'll solve this. Have the staff from each elder from each tribe, 12 of them, bring their staff and lay it down here with the staff of Aaron. And in the morning, the staff that blooms will know who God wants as leaders. Well, Aaron's rod bloomed. Now, let me tell you, do you remember Isaiah who says that out of this dead stump is going to come this twig? Well, out of this dead piece of wood here, look, here come all of these twigs and these blooms. The twigs represent Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The bloom, all of this blooming out of the dead, it's a picture of the resurrection. And it bears fruit. What did, uh, it, it's got almonds on it. This, this is an, a stick from an almond tree, a staff from an almond tree, and now it's bearing not just only flowers, but it's bearing fruit. It's got almonds on it, if you read the story. And uh, that simply tells me that what Paul said is true. He is the first fruits out from among the dead. It's got Jesus written all over it. And then look at this. Here are the tablets of the law that are here. They were in there. These three things were in the Ark of the Covenant. Here this is. This is the written word of God. And what does John say? In the beginning uh, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Here is the written word that becomes a picture of the living word. So what is on the inside of this all represents Christ. Inside the box that represents the throne. Do you know that John talks about looking and seeing a lamb on the throne of heaven? Well, here are the pictures of that in the Old Testament. You can't show the lamb sitting on the throne here, but here inside this 
are the pictures of the Lamb of God who will one day sit on the throne of God. So what that ark represents is it represents God's throne and Jesus Christ. Let me give you the last thing. And the last thing is this. I want you to look that the ark represents the place of instruction. It is from this ark that they would get instruction. Now listen to this. Out of chapter 25 of Exodus, verse 22. There I will meet with you. He's talking at the mercy seat. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. So out of that ark comes the voice of God. It's the voice of instruction. It's the word of instruction that God gives to his people. He's speaking from the ark. Let me, in fact, let me show you that over in Numbers chapter 7. It's kind of a fascinating one little verse. Numbers chapter 7, verse 89. Now, when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat. That was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim. So he, God, spoke to him, Moses. It's interesting. He heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat. So he hears this voice coming out from the mercy seat. Now, let me, I don't have time to do this uh, because I don't have an extra 30 minutes, but let me tell you, you'll find that Joshua gets a hold of the writings of Moses. Moses is written. I believe Moses writes the Pentateuch, Mo, uh, you know, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He writes all of this. And uh, what they do with it is this. They take it. There's some debate. Does he put it in the ark or does he put it beside the ark? Well, I, I'm not exactly sure. I think he puts it beside the ark. But you get the writings of Moses, which is the word of God. Then you get Joshua who writes. Get to the end of Joshua and read this. He writes and uh, he rolls it up and he puts it beside the ark. You get into 1 Samuel. Samuel writes the Old Testament. I'm talking about now all the Old We're up through Joshua. Samuel's writing Judges and into 1 and 2 Samuel. Samuel's writing some of this. I think Ezra takes over at that point and begins to write. But do you know where they keep all of these scrolls of the Old Testament? At the ark. I don't know that it was in the ark, but they keep it beside the ark is what it appears to me to be in 1 Samuel. They keep it beside the ark so that here is the ark from which the voice of God speaks to his people. Now you have the written word by the ark and it is through the written word that God speaks. People run around and say, well, God said to me. No, 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 no. Listen, let me tell you. The only thing God said is right here in this book. Now, you may be impressed by something in this book, I've often said, well, you know, the Lord said to me, but I'm telling you, it's an impression from what I get from the word of God. This is God speaking right here, just as much as he spoke from that ark. And it was a word of instruction. It was a word of direction, which leads you to the best story about the ark that you've ever thought about, which is when Uzzah reaches up to steady it. Now that's the question everybody's got. What in the world happened? Why did God do that? Oh, how horrible, how terrible. 
Well, let me, let me just read you something back here in Exodus 25. You shall make poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. So the poles were to go in there, and when they got somewhere, they set it down, and the poles were never to be removed. It was a constant reminder, you don't pick this thing up and, and, and move it some, any other way other than by these poles, and you put it up on the shoulders of the Kohathites. Uzzah was a Kohathite. Do you think the, the tribe that moved the ark and the showbread table, and the incense altar, and the golden menorah. Do you think that they knew what God had said? Yes. They knew the instruction of God. They knew the direction of God. Well, why then are they moving it on a cart? When Uzzah, who is walking next to it, knows what the word of God has said. They're all happy. David is happy. He's excited. All of this goes to tell me one thing. I don't care how many people you've got. I don't care how excited you get. I don't care how many songs we sing. I don't care how much, you know, celebration goes on. If you're not doing it by the instruction of God, you're not doing it at all. The ark is an ark of God's instruction. It speaks. And it's a picture of his word to us that we are to be found faithful following the word of God. Now, last week I talked about the veil of the temple. And I shared with you that there were two veils in Herod's temple. Uh, they did not know if the veil was to go right inside the Holy of Holies. You know, if you got a line right here, does it go right on the inside of that? Or was it to go just to the outside of that line? So they hung up to two of those veils. And when God rent that veil, he rent both those veils so that when both those veils were rent, what do you suppose was in the Holy of Holies in Herod's temple? Nothing. Nothing was there. The ark wasn't there. They hadn't seen the ark since the day of Jeremiah. We're told in Maccabees that Jeremiah took the ark of the covenant and he went over to Mount Nebo across the Jordan River into the land of Jordan and he hid it in a cave somewhere in the mountain called Mount Nebo. And you say, well, what's the purpose of that? The purpose of it is this, is that they were going through all kind of ceremony and ritual and law in that temple, and the presence of God wasn't there. That was in Jesus' day. Jesus' day. Now, if the veil of your heart could rend we could look on the inside would we see in that place deep within you the presence of God
pray about it. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.